The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. This morning, I'm beginning a series, as Ryan mentioned earlier, entitled The Heart of Worship, in parentheses, Return. One of the things that has really been on my heart as we have not been able to meet corporately as a church body to worship the Lord Jesus every week on Sunday mornings is that what God is wanting to do in us and as well, I think, the body of Christ is to return us back to what the significance of coming together corporately as a body to worship Him is. I'm afraid during the course of time that not by any intention, but it seems as though we have gotten off course as to making Jesus the central focus of our corporate time of worship. This morning, I'm going to look at John chapter 4, verses 1 to 14, where Jesus is having a discourse with the woman at the well. And contained in that passage is a message that Jesus gave on worship. And the passage has everything to do with worship. The passage does not have anything to do with with racism or cultural differences. The passage doesn't have anything to do with uh, ecumenicalism or anything like that. But central in the passage is what Jesus informs her and us of is that what the Father is seeking from those who are true worshipers is that we worship Him in spirit and truth. You see, the fact is, is that everything that you and I do in life has to do with worship. In this particular passage, worship has to do with adultery. You may think that that's shocking, but that's that's the central theme of this passage was was this woman's adultery in her life. And you see, I've come to realize that the Bible teaches us that as, as human beings, everything that you and I do is an act of worship. The question for us as believers is, what we do in our lives and with our lives, with our body, is it, is it an acceptable act of worship to God? You see, everything we do, we are either worshiping the flesh or those things that are driven by the sin nature, and we magnify other gods, small g's in our life, or we express it to God in this acceptable hymn, and it's an act of worship to Him. What we find in the Scriptures is that worship has everything to do with family and relationships. Worship has everything to do with joy and with pain in life, and worship has everything to do with work and leisure. Worship has everything to do with lack and plenty. And what worship does is it intersects that point and that place in our life that every aspect of our lives is given over in worship, and it permeates all that we are and all that we do in life. When we look at worship, we realize that worship, the worship of God and and through all of our lives, transcends the secular and the divine. In other words, there's not a division of what's secular and what's divine, but the question again is, is it acceptable to God? And in that, that's what makes it divine. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians that that everything that we do in life should be done as an act of worship to God. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You see, worship is not an isolated event that takes place on Sunday mornings in a specific hour and in a specific place. 
But worship for the believer is every hour and every day of our lives given over to him as to what is honorable and what is magnifying to him. And so if you picture this scene in John chapter 4 where Jesus and his disciples had been journeying and they go through Samaria and Jesus and his disciples, as John tells us, they're, they're tired from the journey and Jesus sits down there at the well, which was Jacob's well. And there's the Samaritan woman that's there and she's drawing water and Jesus turns to her and he asks her, will you give me a drink? And she responds in verse 9 by saying, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus, instead of answering her question directly, how can you ask me for a drink? He kind of elevates the conversation to another level rather than just answering her specific question. We find in verse 10, Jesus says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. As indicated by her further response to this statement of Jesus, we realize that, that she didn't get what Jesus was saying. Yes, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. It's true. There were, there were great divides by race and culture and religion, and, and they would do everything they could to avoid one another. The Jews considered the Samaritans as worse than Gentiles. But that was not the issue. Jesus says to her, if you knew who was asking you and the gift of God and that I could give you living water, she's on a completely different wavelength than Jesus. You see, she's on a religious wavelength where Jesus is on a relational wavelength. She's thinking of form and fashion and place, and Jesus is thinking relationship with the living God so that you can indeed worship Him. She's doing like many of us had done in our past. She's drinking from stagnant pools of water that can never give satisfaction. And she's like some who are listening or watching this morning who have once drank from that living water and have tasted it but have somehow gone away and are drinking once again from stagnant pools of water, and you're wondering, why is it that I'm not satisfied? Because Jesus promised that I would have this living water that would well up from within me, and not only well up, but would flow to others as well. In verse 11, the woman says to Jesus, Jesus, you, you don't have anything to draw with, and, and the water is deep. Where, where is it that you can get this living water? I kind of think there may have been a hint of sarcasm in the Samaritan's woman tone as she was speaking to Jesus. Some practicality here, but also some, some sarcasm that, that's in it. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Now here Jesus kind of turns the conversation in verse 13. He says, everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water that is from the well, will thirst again. You see, anytime we try to drink from those dead cisterns of water and think that it's going to give us satisfaction, just like literal water, our bodies will crave more and more water. So the individual will crave, will crave more and more water, but they don't realize that they're getting sicker and sicker and sicker drinking from these stagnant pools. You see, 
Jesus lifts her here in, in, in her form of amazement. The amazing thing is not that I can give you water, he says, but, but that I can give you water that will so satisfy you that you'll never thirst again. You'll become more than just a receiver of this water. But from in you, there will be streams of living water that will well up. Now, what was Jesus speaking of when he talked about this living water? Well, we understand and know from John chapter 7 that, that Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit of God. That, that if you drink from this water, it's living water, and from you will flow, flow rivers of living water so that you will never thirst again. There'll be more than just a natural gratification, a temporary gratification that only satisfies in the moment. But there'll be a gratification that continues day in and day out as you walk in the Spirit of God and have your move, all your movement and your being in Him filled with Him that out of you will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said this in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let me ask you this morning, what well have you been drinking from? Has it satisfied? Maybe it's satisfied for the moment, or maybe it's satisfied for a period of time, but has it really satisfied? You see, Jesus gives a promise here that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And by this, he meant the Spirit of God. Verse 15, the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty to have to keep coming to draw from the water here. She's still thinking in, in the religious, she's still thinking in the natural. And, and what Jesus is talking about is a spiritual quenching of thirst that only he can satisfy. And, and then there's a twist in the passage that you wonder, where did this come from? And, and what gives Jesus the right to say this to this woman in verse 16? He says to her, go call your husband and come back. And she rightly answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her in verse 17, you are right when you say that you have no husband. In fact, verse 18, you have had five husbands, and the man that you are now with is not your husband. What you would have just said is quite true. Jesus hits her right at the heart of the issue. You see, for her, the stagnant pools that she had been drinking from were men that she thought would fulfill and satisfy her, only to find that after the fifth one, it still did not satisfy that longing that she had. And the man that she was with now was not even her husband. Can I tell you that those cisterns of stagnant water will only leave you in destitution without any hope. But Jesus promises a living water and that if you drink from that, you'll never thirst again. Now, I'm quite aware that some are watching this and they're believers this morning. And, and you may be saying, you know, I tasted from that living water. Why is it that I still thirst? And can I tell you, it's because you're trying to double dip. You're trying to dip in the old cisterns of stagnant water and at the same time dip in the living water. But folks, the, the, 
the two don't work together. You see, this woman, like many of us can become, had been so desensitized to the sin in her life that she no longer had any taste buds. You see, Jesus knew her most sensitive and vulnerable point in her life. Go tell your husband, he says. The quickest way to someone's heart is through a wound. And Jesus understood this. Jesus saw the wound that was in this woman's heart. And it may seem cruel that he came to her at that, but what Jesus is looking to do is to give her this living water so that she'll never thirst again. And the Father's desire and will would be that she not live in that, but she would have true meaning in life as she's drank from the living water and have a living relationship with God, not just a form of religion that is full of liturgy and tradition that that has no meaning whatsoever. You see, we can be the same way, that we can be so desensitized to sin that that even though we've drank from that living water, it's not that the living water is dysfunctional, it's that we're trying to drink from those old cisterns again. Look at verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) I love this. Jesus hits her with the sin issue in her heart, and she does like so many other individuals. She turns it to a conversation of religion. She turns it from the heart matter to a form matter. Again, she she turns it back to religion rather than relationship. You see, in her life, this sin had become like leprosy that it was eating away at her and she didn't even realize it, and so can it do the same in our lives as well. She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What she was saying here, really, if you put it in today's vernacular and terms... She was saying, well, where do you say that the, the real or the right place is that people ought to worship? What's the right form that people ought to use in their expression of worship to God? What's the right tradition that, that we should follow in worship? What's the right style that we should follow in worship? How should we do the ritualistic religious creeds and orders? And Jesus is going to give her an answer that blows her away and blows all of us away as well. The moment we go to that argument, Jesus says in verse 21, Believe me, woman... A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See what Jesus is saying. He's answering the same old controversy that we've been having for centuries, literally, in the body of Christ. The controversy is not the place or the form or the style, but it's the whom and the how of our worship that the Father is concerned about. You see, the Father... Couldn't, couldn't give one iota if we, if we worship to a song that was written 900 B.C. As, as David recorded in the Psalms or, or whether we worshiped him, expressed our heart to him in a song that was written in 2020. It doesn't matter. What God looks at is the heart and he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. We get hung up on the externals. God is not concerned about the externals one bit. 
You see, the moment we go to the externals, what we're really saying is, this is how I like worship rather than what does the Father desire in worship. The externals are irrelevant. What's important are the internals. Matthew 15, 18, Jesus says this. Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men. Their worship is in vain. In other words, it's empty. And their rules are taught by men, not by what God has said. And so we're getting at the crux of of this heart and worship where Jesus says, the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. You see, worship is first and foremost an experience of the heart coming from our inner man to him. Without without heart, worship is vain. Without a, a longing and a truth to our worship and expression of God, it's in vain. It goes no higher than the ceiling, whether you're there in your home or you're here in this sanctuary. The same would go for prayer. Prayer without heart is vain and it's empty. Preaching without heart is vain and it's empty. Teaching without heart is vain and it's empty. What God is looking for is those who express their worship and adoration to Him in spirit and in truth. He goes on to say in verse 22, You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Let me put a parenthesis here. Jesus wasn't, notice he didn't say, you guys go ahead and worship God the way you want to. The Jews will worship God the way we want to. And we're all worshiping the same God. You see, that's ecumenicalism. That's, that's what the world is saying today. Is that it doesn't matter. His name might be Muhammad. His name might be Yasha. It, it, as long as we worship a God. No, Jesus is very clear. Because truth and God had been revealed to the Jews. They were worshiping the true God. And so it's not many roads and many paths. There is one living and true God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He says in verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, spirit and truth correspond with the whom and the how of worship. Spirit is opposite of those external means and external ways. God's not concerned with those. What God is concerned with, are we worshiping Him in the Spirit? And someone asked, does it mean the capital S Spirit or the small s Spirit? I think it means both. That we worship Him by the Spirit of God and we worship Him in Spirit, meaning that the externals don't matter, but it is a heart issue in where we worship Him. You see, the truth part of this is expressing in truth to God in our worship to Him what He has revealed about Himself through His special revelation in the Word of God. And as we worship Him in light of that, and our hearts are in tune with that, it does not matter what the externals are. I can sit quietly with my hands folded, or I can stand with my hands raised, or I can yell in the sound booth like Ronnie does every Sunday morning. 
that it's a heart issue and it's a heart matter. You see, those are externals that, that men place on worship. But God places no value on that whatsoever. I want to close with an analogy that I heard from John Piper that I think is very good. John Piper speaks of this worship in spirit and in truth, and he says this, the fuel of worship is truth. What fuels our worship is the Word of God. And when you and I read in the psalm, God, your love is steadfast. That's truth, that His Word is steadfast. And in that, in our spirit, we'll move to respond to God in His steadfast love and say, Oh, God, I worship you because your love is steadfast. Where, whether we sing, A mighty fortress is our God. And we know that the Scriptures say that He is our fortress. It's with that we bear witness with the truth because it's contained in the Word of God. And we can express to God, a mighty fortress is our God. You see, it doesn't matter what century or decade the expression is written. What matters is the truth that it's there. How we express it. The externals of that, the style, the methodology, the instrumentation, none of that matters. It does to us. You see, we're driven to think about what's in it for me and not what's in it for God. Can I say this in the most loving way? Worship has nothing to do with you and me. It has everything to do with God and us bowing before Him and responding to Him in spirit based on the truth of the Word of God. So John Piper says that the fuel of worship is the truth, the Word of God. The furnace of worship is our spirit. It's not a building. But the furnace is our spirit as we're in fellowship with the Spirit of God as He resides in us. That's the furnace where it's burning in our heart. And in a way, we just can't, we can't help but express it because it's burning there. He goes on to say that the heat of worship are the affections that are born in us. You see, we're emotional beings. We're created in the image of God. And as God has emotions, so do we. And so the expressions that are of joy, that, that are happiness, expressions that, that might be of longing or broken heart or gratitude or hope, those are where the two meet and we worship God in spirit and in truth. Elas concludes, then what is the fire? And quite appropriately, he says, fire is the Holy Spirit of God. God is calling us back to a heart of worship. Our intention here as we gather at First Conyers to worship God corporately, again beginning June 14th, we're going to be able to come into the building and worship Him as well as online. But our intention here at First Conyers in our corporate worship, our aim and our goal is that we plan our corporate worship services centered on the Word of God. That that is what drives our worship to Him. And we select expression in song that would magnify and lift up and exhort the truth of the Word of God. That our prayers would magnify the Lord Jesus. That everything we do would draw our hearts to Him. And when we leave this place, we will know that we have met with Him, we have worshipped Him, and we have heard God that morning. Folks, that's what it's all about. 
is to worship Him. Jesus said, my Father's house should be a house of prayer. And I know the arguments that the temple no longer exists, etc., etc., but we are the temple of God. And He says it shall be a house of prayer. Prayer is expressed in so many different ways, and one of the ways that we express it corporately is through song, through the exhortation of the Word, through the giving of our gifts to God, and through prayer. And so all of that is prayer. It's communion with God. The thing that you and I need most is to commune with God. I want to encourage you to take some time this afternoon. Have a time of communing with God. Reflect on John chapter 4, verses 1 to 24, and allow the Holy Spirit of God to draw you near to Him and have your own time of expressing to Him, whether it be in song or word or reading His word back to Him. I love you. I look forward to being with you every morning in the devotions at 8 a.m., And remember, June 14th, we will be back corporately with social distancing, and we will also have a time change to our service, which will be 10 a.m. to accommodate the live stream, etc. So mark that on your calendar, June 14th, service time shift to 10 a.m. God bless you. May the Lord keep you. May His face shine upon you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.